Hello everyone, welcome to the Dialogue Box. Chris Slight here with Gwen Frey, and we are joined this week by Jason Schreier from Kotaku. Jason, how you doing? Hello, hello. Thank you guys for having me. It is good to be here. Not a problem, man. How you doing, Gwen? I'm doing good. I'm one week closer to GDC. Shit, yeah, that thing's coming up. Yeah, everyone I know is slammed right now, getting ready. I don't know, <laughs> uh, Jason, do you do a lot for GDC? Yeah, uh, I am podcasting all over the place. We have a schedule packed full of uh, my co-host Maddie Myers and I are going out and we're bringing all our recording equipment and we like wind up every year we wind up renting uh, or not renting, booking one of the booths in the media room. Um, and we have uh, a bunch of game developers come and just do kind of rapid fire 20, 30 minute interviews and chat about whatever we feel like chatting about. So that's always fun. And then also uh, on top of that I have like regular interviews and drinks and coffees and my schedule is kind of gnarly right now as as they always turn out to be for GDC but it's fun it, it's awesome it's awesome to be out there and like um, especially for us Gwen on the east coast where there aren't a ton of game developers feels like it's more centralized in California LA San Fran mm -hmm. it's nice to be just around um, that scene for for a week or so yeah I do feel like I'm really far away from it out here I, I don't run into developers uh like in san francisco you would just run into them all the time Pe mm -hmm. like a, a group of people going to lunch from crystal dynamics or something i do miss that sometimes but the uh we should have introduced uh jason schreier you work at kotaku i do yeah yeah <laughs> i i work at kotaku.com i have been for i've been there for seven years now which is pretty wild yeah this is our first time having somebody from the media uh here on the podcast which is crazy because we've we've talked about shows all the time and what we do but gdc is a weird show it's a, not like pax or uh you know like gamescom or anything like that it's way more focused on um on developers it's supposed to be a show for developers i didn't even know there was a media room actually <laughs> there is they it's actually it's you. funny the media room in moscone is actually much like more professional and cleaner and nicer than the media room at say e3 um i don't know why i don't know why that is maybe it's because it's just a smaller group of media that come out and so you don't have the same like oh look it's a dude wearing a cape for some reason <laughs> or like you don't have the same body odor issues maybe as you do at a, at a PAX or an E3? Well, I imagine <laughs> it's got to be a lot less fun to cover because, e, well, how do we put it? Like E3 is definitely has a lot of flash and bang and they're, they're showing off games, whereas uh, there aren't usually games revealed at GDC. That's kind but of... But that's why it's more fun to cover. So one of the things that Kotaku does that I think is a little bit different or really has set the tone for a lot of other game sites' coverage is we tend to focus more on games that are already out and games that are live and ongoing than we do on games that are upcoming. So like E3, I mean, just being around the sizzle and the, the hype and the flash, it can be fun, but I actually enjoy GDC a lot more because I enjoy just like being in this atmosphere where you can just grab dinner with a bunch of developers and just talk to them about whatever and pick their brains. And it's a lot more chill when you don't have to worry about like, okay, now I have to go see this demo for a game that won't be out for another year and a half and will probably look nothing like what the demo actually looks like. It's a lot more real GDC. It's a lot more just, I don't know, I have a lot better conversations and better better just interviews in general and better, um, yeah, so better conversations both on and off the record at GDC than I do 
at E3 in general. E3 is just like, because of that hype element, it's all very PR controlled and just very uh, stuffy in a way that GDC is not. Yeah, GDC, the biggest risk of GDC as a developer is you have to be careful that there's no press around when you go out drinking because it's it's an atmosphere where developers get together to like literally not literally break NDA, but you know, like talk about how you do what you it's do in a way. Yeah, I mean, I mean. Well, so so a couple of years ago, we actually, so I think this was 2016. And so Sony hadn't yet announced the PS4 Pro at all. It was called, it was codenamed Neo. And we heard about it um, probably a couple of weeks before GDC, like separately. And then coincidentally, one of our reporters, Keza McDonald from the UK, who's great. Um, she was like standing in line for an event and heard two people behind her talking about the PS4 Pro. And she was like, what? And like told us about it and we were like oh my god wow well that helps us confirm that so yes that definitely happens <laughs> dude well what do you um do you guys print stuff like that ahead of time too how do how do you handle it when you have juicy gossip like that way in advance so um, it depends i mean so i've done a lot of thinking because i we have we've i mean we've been like kind of on the vanguard and the forefront of a lot of this kind of reporting of reporting that's like behind the like cuts through the kind of PR schedule that doesn't just follow the marketing hype cycle because there's a certain there are different types of reporting in games media and I think one of them is that um, game informer style like every every month we're gonna have a cover and it's gonna be based on a trip to the game studio that we made with PR approval and it's very much like part of the marketing almost and that's what oh, works yeah. for them that's what works for that magazine right. I- I mean, that's and like a huge deal too. Like you, um, there's times when I've been told we can't slip the date because we've bought the cover for Game Informer for this month, uh-huh. right? Yep. 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 Yeah. And that's like, so that's literally like Game Informer is willingly part of that marketing cycle and that's fine for them. Like it's not my cup of tea just as a reporter, but that's what they do. And so what we do has always been a little bit different and has been more about like, we don't really care about the PR plan. We are going to set out to inform readers about what's going on in video games. And so something I've given a lot of thought to recently is the question of like, when do we report on a leak? When someone from Ubisoft contacts me and is like hey Jason like I just I'm working on Watch Dogs 3 and here's what you should know about or like here's what the next Assassin's Creed is going to be at what point do we say okay this is newsworthy and we should report on this and I feel like the answer there are no easy answers we talk about this a lot and it's like at one point is it really justifiable and at what point does it do more harm than good at what point does it actually serve readers for them to know about something that's going to be announced anyway Um, And what happens often is I will hear a lot of stuff that I just don't report. And then sometimes I have to, I I mean, we make a lot of decisions of like, what should we report? What shouldn't we report? Um, What games do we know about that are coming that we're not going to tell people about because we don't really think there's enough news value to justify potentially harming the people who are working on it. Um, And then in in what cases do we want to report on this because we feel like it's really important for readers to know it. Um, And so like a good example, an example I've been using recently as kind of uh, an epitome of how we think about this sort of thing is Fallout 76, right? So just a little bit of context. So last year, um, Bethesda started teasing this new Fallout game. I had heard that it was coming a, a little while before that um, and just chose to n- not report on it because it didn't. F- it felt like something that was about to get announced anyway. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they put out this teaser trailer that's like Fallout 76 and it's like this big cinematic trailer that basically makes it feel like a Fallout game. Like it, if you watch that trailer, if anyone goes back and watches 
that original Fallout 76 announcement trailer, it basically seems like it's a new New Vegas or whatever, like a regular Fallout spinoff. Um, at that point, I was like, wait a minute, I know that this is not a regular Fallout game. This is a multiplayer survival game. And so we wound up reporting that. And I think that's a good example of something where like we feel obligated to share what we know um, ahead of time because it doesn't serve readers to be misled into thinking that this is a regular Fallout game and like they're taking pre-orders on it and Mm -hmm. and we felt like we felt like we had to tell people what was going on um but in a case where it's like i don't know the next watchdogs or whatever i don't feel particularly like obligated or compelled to be like hey look watchdogs 3 is coming and here's where it's said and whatever um just because i know that people will find it out anyway um so in general just to to the tldr version of this long-winded response (laughs) is I like to focus more on stories that people won't find out about anyway, or like stories that tend to serve readers more than just like, hey, here's what's coming in the future. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely hear where you're coming from. I don't know why, like, my blood turned cold during some of those things you said there, just because on the other side of it is like, you're the person who was accidentally uh, overheard at a bar because you drank one too many at GDC, and then, like, now watch somebody maybe somebody less scrupulous than you uh reports that watchdog is coming out and then uh you lose your job like that's such a common story the the person who accidentally put something on linkedin and then um saying that they're gonna go be the new multiplayer programmer at you know some studio that doesn't usually do multiplayer yeah yeah and then like kataku picks it up or something that's basically the nightmare scenario that's why everyone's so guarded around the press it's why there's so much um that's like for a larger game, I'm indie now, so it doesn't matter. But in AAA, for instance, we would have uh, before anybody went to talk to the press in any mm-hmm. any reasonable capacity, you have to do media training. And part of that is like they they tell you exactly the sentences that you are to say, exactly the words you are to say, what is announced, what is not announced. And then you get like um, if you're going to like a party where there's people there from the press, you'll get a packet, which is like a photo of the each person and a quick bio of who they are and their name and stuff. So like I would get like here's a photo of Jason Schreier, Jason Schreier and like a couple bullet notes on on what you're interested in. The sometimes <laughs> if it's a serious one, they'll actually like prep you with questions they think Jason Schreier will ask you so that uh-huh, you're completely uh-huh. on message, right? Because that's because it so much goes into these games and so much work goes into this and in reality over Easily, you take your entire dev budget, you multiply it by three, that's probably the marketing budget. And you can <laughs> blow years of work and millions of dollars by just leaking the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, but then the flip side of that is, does it really matter? Like, does it really matter that someone found on LinkedIn that there's going to be multiplayer in this game? It's not. Uh, <laughs> I, the thing about this PR plan and this whole marketing plan stuff is that oftentimes it just strikes me as preposterous. Like, it's not going to affect your sales one way or another if your PR person allows you to say how many guns are in the next game <laughs> that's coming out. Like, oftentimes the the level that it's taken to is often absurd. Um, 
Um, like oftentimes when I'm at E3, and this is one of the reasons that I prefer GDC over E3, by the way, is like you're at E3 and you're sitting there with a developer who's clearly been media trained and there's a PR person in the room with you and you're doing this formal interview and like half the questions you ask, the PR person will be like, actually, we're not talking about that right now. And that's one of the reasons that we have like pretty much stopped doing or like really cut down on the number of like game previews that we've done or like interviews about games before they come out um, just because they're never rarely that interesting and like we less and less like more and more just do not want to be part of that like pre-release hype oh absolutely but can you understand i i mean can you understand the other side of it how this happens like you get the no man's sky situation where you developers are excited and we're always working on things at all the time and things are in flux especially you know like a year out or so there's still going to be some major sweeping changes and you start saying like yeah here's what we're planning we think we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're not even afraid of the reporters we're afraid of the what happens from the story you know what i mean mm. like no man's sky is the perfect example of something like that happening where uh the developer was perhaps really ambitious and really excited and said a lot of things and maybe i i mean i don't want to like dig into it but like maybe kind <laughs> yeah. of sort of over promised there right and yeah 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 and like it's not so much i think that people are afraid that the press are going to do the wrong thing is the wrong message will get out and so uh, focusing on just the core message and the core things that you want to get out there. I mean, I, I totally understand why it happens. Like I, yeah. And, and I mean, something that I have been trying to do, um, just as part of my career, something that I've like tried to work on is creating more transparency, allowing game developers to open up a little bit more, trying to shed some light for readers on how these things happen and how these decisions get made um, and why a promise made in 2017 might not materialize in 2019. Um, and I think just having that transparency is the way to actually just... Uh, inspire empathy among people. I mean, just for an example, um, Destiny was a game that was very much overhyped and then underdelivered when it first came out. And um, I wound up running a story about a year after it launched that was about how the st how Destiny's development happened, basically, and how the story of de of Destiny was rebooted a year before it came out, and they basically overhauled the entire game. And that's why when it launched, it felt like so much of it was just kind of stitched together because because it was. And um, I think that story kind of set the tone for how people talked about the game. And if you went on Reddit before that versus after that story, it, the conversations were a lot different. It was a lot more like, oh my God, um, I can't believe that they even shipped anything after all this. And there was a lot more empathy and sympathy, I think, um, oh, yeah. especially when we talk about like the tools that that Bungie was using. And that was one of the, one of the problems that I highlighted in that Destiny story was like, you try to move a rock in the level editor and it might take you uh, 20 minutes or an hour and then you have to wait overnight for the whole thing to re-render and all the, all the issues that, uh, that we have talked about with tools. Um, so yeah, I think just being more transparent about that stuff and, and letting yourself free from the media training and the PR person standing next to you and breathing down your neck about what you can or can't say. I mean, that's the, the way to just make it, like make people understand why something is different. 
And you look at those things. I mean, No Man's Sky is a perfect example because what happened was um, Sean Murray had been talking before release about how people would be able to see each other, multiplayer, et cetera, et cetera. And then none of that turned out to be in the game. But then instead of just coming out and saying, hey, we tried to make this work and it didn't work, he just shut down and like stopped talking. And I think that was ultimately the problem behind the game is that there was just no transparency there. I think people people find transparency really rewarding and humanizing and just uh, that's the way to to get people to not be infuriated at when you're making changes in development is just to be as transparent as possible. And and we've seen that a lot with like Kickstarters and um, different different examples of like people of developers just being totally open about their projects and why things change and just allowing gamers and fans to see the human side of things, I think is, is the way to go to uh, avoid that kind of backlash. Oh, absolutely. I, I really do love some of the articles you've written about, um, like you've done a lot of articles about layoffs, especially, you know, I've worked at Rational, so I, I would read the ones you wrote about 2K and that sort of thing. And I think you've done a lot to uh, really shine a light behind the curtain. I'm actually surprised. Do those articles um, get as much traction with your readership as the articles about games? Like the... uh, it depends. It depends on the article. Yeah. Um. We we've we've done some big investigative reports that do pretty well. Um. So it depends. I mean, ultimately, the amount of resources that we spend on an article it doesn't really matter how much traffic it gets. Like in terms of. Well, I don't know. We have no visibility as reporters into revenue and like how much the site is making or anything like that. There's a very strong wall between the editorial and the advertisement sides of uh, a company like ours. Um, and I think that's the case for most professional media outlets is that you don't have any, if you're a reporter or an editor, you don't have any visibility into what's making money and what isn't. Weird. Um, Wait, why? Yeah. Well, because it's we don't want that to affect how we cover things. Right. Like we we don't get up in the morning and say, all right, what are we going to write today that's going to get the most page views or the most make the most money for Kotaku? Like we get up in the morning and say, hey, what are we going to write today that's most interesting for our readers? And obviously we want people to read the things that we write, but like there's no correlation between my page views and my tra and my money or anything like that. Like I get a salary and benefits that don't change based on my traffic or anything like the the revenue side of things. And yeah, I mean, maybe people people don't realize that um, in the game developer community but like the the traffic that comes in does not have any effect on our editorial style or our money or anything like oh that. man i just think it's funny because in this day and age with media being what it is especially youtubers and stuff always advertising oh i just hit this many subscribers so uh, yeah, YouTube is a whole different thing. And yeah. YouTubers, I mean, it, there's a level of irony because there's like this belief among some gamers that YouTubers are the only ones you can trust and that uh, traditional games media is all paid and corrupt. And then in the real world, YouTubers are literally getting paid by the companies they cover. Um, and we are not. Like the, the companies we cover have absolutely no influence on us. And that's what allows someone like me to do the reports, reporting that I can do on these companies without having to worry about pissing anyone off do people um, actually but, accuse you of being like jaded and corrupt or whatever is that a oh yeah 100 percent. people think that we're like run by the companies that we cover that like ea is paying us sony is paying us oh, whoever is paying us that's not game developers though you're just talking about like gamers in general no gamers in general yeah yeah, 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 yeah. no game developers i think have different uh different opinions one of the things i've heard from game developers is that uh especially recently with the arena at stuff um which we can get into if you want mm -hmm. but like when that when we reported on those layoffs i heard a lot of um 
um, both privately and publicly, I heard a lot of complaints like you're just doing this for clicks, you're just doing this for clicks. And I think that is kind of like revealing of a lack of understanding as to how the media business works because the articles that get clicks are, uh, especially when you're looking at the cost, the, like the, the resources allocation versus traffic, um, that kind of proportion, um, the, the articles that get the most clicks are like, hey, look, it's a viral video that you're going to spread around Facebook and is going to bring in a million page views. Like that's, that's what gets clicks. Like layoff stories are not bringing in clicks and they take a lot more time to write than uh, say a 15 minute post about the latest uh, uh, Disney Prince's video or whatever. Yeah, so it, I mean, we can definitely go into that, but I'm curious if you know it doesn't get as many clicks and you know your readership isn't quite as interested in it, why do you, you do write a lot of human stories, a lot of stories about layoffs and things. And I'm just curious why you choose to do that. Cause you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think art like snack taku and the, uh, the more bubblegum stuff probably gets a lot more, um, I don't know click what's the polite way to say clicks a lot more <laughs> you can say clicks it doesn't matter love. yeah that's not no clicks is, is is perfectly fine no don't get me wrong look i'm not saying that like these articles don't bring in traffic i mean i'm looking i'm just pulling up some articles now about like the activision blizzard reporting we were doing and these mm -hmm. are stories that are bringing a quarter million or half a million page views which is pretty good i'm not saying that that is like a uh, that those stories are not resonating with people because they are but the amount of time that someone like me has to put into them because the a story like that requires me getting on the phone with people building relationships with people um texting like just putting a lot more time in writing a lot more time in the actual reporting and writing than it would for me to just like write uh, a guide to like how to unlock all the best weapons in anthem or whatever and that i think would bring in a lot more traffic because google is is often what brings in the most traffic people just searching for things um so in terms of like the cost benefit ratio or whatever you would call it the cost benefit analysis the cost traffic analysis um the the layoff stories are not like like if if our bean counters if our finance department had their way we would probably not be doing that stuff um but it is important and interesting and i think resonates with a lot of people um it's just something that like i mean if if we were dictated to if our marketing and sales department told us what to do then we would probably just have a different approach um we also probably would be more afraid to piss off companies than we are now, yeah. um, which is uh, like like they if if our sales department had their way, I'm sure they would not be pleased about the fact that Bethesda has blacklisted us for five years and counting. So it's 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 very journalism is just a very interesting industry and media in general, where like what the writers and reporters and editorial staff is actually doing is not exactly what makes the company the most money which i think is one of the reasons that just as a business we've seen so many media companies just failing and and spiraling and uh getting kind of leached upon by equity private equity um mm -hmm. because it's this world where like it's a business but it's not a business where the employees the talent is trying to make as much money as possible because there's just like this kind of loftier goal of serving information to people and telling the truth and speaking truth to power. And that's always what I've believed in, which is why it's been fantastic and why I've been at Kotaku for so long, because Kotaku and just like our parent company, Gizmodo Media, our institution is just very much about doing that and serving that mission, serving our readers sure. um, without having to worry about all the other I think bullshit. Where it, where it falls down is when 
like serving truth to power is absolutely i'm not saying it falls down it's absolutely true uh you have a microphone and you can definitely get a lot of people to like you you can sway public opinion in a huge way and, and that's an incredible power and it's also some of the reasons why i think a lot of game developers including me fear the press right because the press can get you fired uh because when you say like speaking truth to power the um leak accidentally saying too much on LinkedIn and then losing your job because of it or getting in a situation um how do I put it like it the most interactions with the press are oh god I hope they could write a good article about this game that I've spent my years on but we can't mm -hmm. you know you can't expect that or you can never yeah. really be really close friends with the press because that's like a weird uh that just makes things weird I don't know uh -huh. how to put it yeah, well, there are a few angles of that. I mean, one is, for one, actually, I mean, you would be hard-pressed to find, I don't think you could ever find, except maybe before I started, a Kotaku article about someone's LinkedIn profile <laughs> and changing their status mm -hmm. on LinkedIn, or like, like we just don't do that. I think you can find that stuff on kind of lower-tier websites, stuff, you know, websites that you haven't really heard of, um, so that's not really our type of thing. But I definitely hear you on, like, stories and, like, criticism of games. I mean, that's a whole different... Um, um, territory is the critiquing and criticism of, of games, which is something that I do less of. I do more reporting than mm -hmm. um, than criticism. And I, I think uh, a lot of the reporting you do is really good. And I think it's amazing that you you do shine a light on developers, um, which I'm used to from like Gamma Sutra, a, a publication that's more like focused for developers. But it's cool to see that there's interest among gamers on how game developers think and do. And it's cool to see, in a way, it's cool to see articles about layoffs uh, in in Gotaku, because it is something I, I know you you're part of a union and you're like kind of pro union station i've been following you on twitter for a while uh and i i think the reason why that one in particular stung a bit was because they were in the process of uh the arena net layoffs they were in the process of like announcing the layoffs at the studio and it was rolling through the studio and i think a lot of people um an argument on twitter for that one a lot of people were like how can you, I'm sorry, so just to back up for a second, when when the arena net layoffs were happening and there was an article put up on Kotaku through back channels, I heard some people who were really miffed because they were sitting at their desk, they hadn't heard about it yet, or they were working off site and they had just um, found out that they might get laid off through Kotaku. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yeah, that's happened for years and years. I mean, I remember like six or seven years ago, I heard from someone who was like, well, found out my studio was shutting down through Kotaku. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me is I don't horrible. Think yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that's your fault. Your job is to report. And I think whoever leaked that, maybe I I disagree with their decisions there because it seems like know. it's... Well, so I, I disagree with you on that too because I think whoever leaked that felt like their company was doing a disservice by not informing employees. I mean, you look at a arena net and like this is a horrible situation and it's too bad that um i and i also heard and talked to a few arena net people who were pissed off at me for reporting on these layoffs um just a little bit more context here so i first heard about arena net planning layoffs days before it happened i was talking to people working on confirming it i heard about it from people at arena net and outside of arena net in the entire in the seattle game dev scene um I think the fact that those people are hearing these rumors and a 
reading it is not saying anything is itself the, the problem. And I think that for people to blame someone like me or Kotaku or the press at all for reporting on layoffs before the company announces it, as opposed to looking at the company and saying, hey, if news of layoffs, if the rumors of layoffs are getting out to other Seattle game developers and we still don't know about it, like, what the fuck? Like, why aren't you talking to us? Why aren't you telling us what's going on? Um, to me, that is like a, a major failure on management's uh, case. And I think that the reason people were talking to me about it is because they wanted their coworkers and their colleagues in game development to be informed and like have notice of what's going on and being able to prepare because it's way better to have notice than it I, is to show up at work one day and get told, hey, clean out your desk. Security's waiting for you over there. So, and I mean, I agree. Why did you... Uh, I'm just asking, why did you mm -hmm. sit on it until the basically an hour before it was happening then? Because I didn't have any sort of confirmation. All I had was rumors. Um, I needed, uh, there's a certain level of confirmation that we generally expect um, before and like generally are looking for. It really depends on the story and it depends on a lot of different circumstances. So I don't want to say that there's like a hard and fast rule of the number of sources we need or whatever. But um, I'm not going to report on layoffs until I know for sure that they're happening because the worst, the absolute worst thing I could do would be print a story about layoffs that is not true and like freak a bunch of people out for no reason and then it turns out to just be a false rumor which has certainly happened and I've seen that happen to my own company where like the press does that um that's like like uh then I would be like holy shit like you should be totally pissed off at me if I did something like that um so yes in this case we didn't have enough confirmation to feel comfortable printing anything until uh, someone sent along the email to me that was NCSoft informing all of them that there were layoffs coming. At that point, I felt comfortable printing. Um, but before that, it was since it was so much of just like rumors and I didn't have any documentation and I didn't have hard enough confirmation, I didn't feel comfortable printing anything at that point. But I would have. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had proof like two days before it was announced that layoffs were coming, I certainly would have printed that um, because that is like important information to get out there and it serves readers and it uh, in a supplementary way, it also serves as developers. Um, oh, absolutely. But, if you know, I mean, most of the layoffs I've seen or heard of or been a part of, because I've been laid off several times uh, from studio closures, uh, it's always really beneficial to know to kind of mentally prepare to know it's coming. And there's always rumors circling, circulating around the studio right beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like you always kind of. But the other side of that is, I swear, there's a lot of times when things get really dark and you think your studio is about to do a layoff and then they don't. Or you're, you think your studio might be closing or the next project isn't happening. And so you do kind of get you build up a sort of a callus about that kind of bad news sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, by the time Irrational shut down, I think for, was that a good example? Yeah. For a lot of us, it was kind of a shock because we thought that would happen, but we thought it would happen like months before. And then we're like, I guess maybe it won't happen. And so you kind of built up this sort of resistance for like, okay, maybe, you know, it looks like this isn't going to, looks like we're going to continue as a studio. I guess this is fine. And then the hammer falls in it and it mm. totally sucks. And there's no, dude, something like this, like a Mm. it's just emotional. It's just such a hard thing it, to lose your job, to lose your job suddenly, especially, um, like, I think in their case, a project was canceled as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So, like, all of a sudden, you were working on something one minute, and then they're like, stand up, come into this room. Yeah, that thing is never going to see the light of day. That's yep. so hard. 
Um, yeah, and what's really screwed up is that management likely knew weeks before that that project was canceled, but they let people go ahead and keep working on it and wasting work and getting their hopes up because there was no mechanism in place that forced management to actually inform people that this is going to happen. And I think that's one of the things that unionization can do to get back on that point. <laughs> I don't think that unions can ultimately prevent layoffs. Um, you can certainly strike a contract that has different clauses, contingency clauses, clauses that say like there's forced severance in the case of a layoff. All sorts of things can happen depending on the contract that you, your union negotiates with your management, which is something you both, both parties have to agree upon. But, um, but one of the things that unions can do is like ensure that the workers actually have a seat at the table. And I know this from firsthand experience because last year, last summer, my company had layoffs. And as a result of a really strong union, um, we were able to notify people, inform people in advance. And also we were able to negotiate with management and convince them to let us do buyouts instead where people could volunteer and get X amount of severance um, and therefore potentially save other people from being laid off. So um, I think that's one of the things that organizing can get you is just making sure that you have an open communication channel with management so it doesn't have to be just like whispers and so leaks to the press. In your case, who is management? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a little confusing because we're owned by Univision, um, which is uh, the huge Spanish language television company that mm -hmm. bought us a couple of years back. So were they um, the ones your union was negotiating with? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And we actually just negotiated a new contract um, last week or two weeks ago. That was uh, that was the, the long and hard process of negotiating with Univision. Um, but yes, that is management in this case. But in, in a studio's case, it might be the CEO. In ArenaNet's case, it might be NCSoft, the parent company. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of different scenarios under which this could happen. And there are a lot of different uh, ways that unions could be shaped and, and a lot of ways that could look like. Sure. I guess for me, it's just difficult to imagine because I've worked at different places um, where there is different structure, right? Like, uh, mm -hmm. it, and I think it it's really easy to think of like, like it's easy to throw up management and get mad at that, that word and just be like, yeah, management got it wrong. But yeah. it's different yeah, when yeah, it's yeah. like, um, in the case of Irrational, I believe the nobody at Irrational really, I mean, I, mean, I don't know exactly because I wasn't you know, that high up, but nobody really knew that the layoffs were coming until maybe a couple days before. And then the studio director, who, by the way, was part of the, like, basically what happened is they said, this, this studio is being closed. I need you to be closed down the studio. And also you don't have a job either. The studio is being closed. Hmm. And so it's not like, like she was kind of in the same boat we were, right? So she mm -hmm. sat down and she, or she did the best she could. She started out by telling um, the directors. She organized a career fair with HR from different studios. Like, as far as layoffs go, I mean, it was, it sucks. It's never good. It's brutal being out of work, especially in an industry like this that's so turbulent where it's hard to get work again. But as far as layoffs go, it was pretty well managed. I think. Yeah, I think that that's like like there's nothing wrong with like there are definitely humane shutdowns and layoffs. And yeah. um, as you know, I've been doing a lot of research on this, um, and that's absolutely the case. And I think that one of the great things about unions is that instead of just like hoping that management is decent and treats you like humans and does your layoff and your shutdown humanely with a union, you can actually force that to be the case. So like maybe if Rational was unionized nothing would have changed but if telltale was unionized i bet a lot of things would have changed and that would have gone down a lot differently because so? it, like 
Yeah, I, heard, I think that. So what I heard, rumor is that mm-hmm. they were, yeah. uh, they were about to sign a really, really big contract. Yep. Uh, yep. The that fell through. It looked like it wasn't going to fall through. The owners put up their own money to continue the studio for as long as possible. Lost a shit ton of money because everything fell apart, and then they just had zero dollars. So can mm-hmm. you, what can union do in a situation where there is zero dollars? Yeah, there are a couple things that a union could do. One is that a union could ensure that instead of keeping this all quiet, the ownership is a lot more transparent about that situation because mm-hmm. it's incredibly fucked up. I mean, no matter how selfless the owners may be in putting up their own money, the fact that they kept all this secret from employees is incredibly fucked up. And I'm sure they did it for the right reasons. I'm sure they did it because they didn't want people to panic. But that is still not the way that you can operate a company humanely. Like, uh, people cannot... Think think one on a Wednesday that everything is going great and then on a Thursday come in and be told the studio is shutting down like that is something has gone horribly wrong in the process and the communication chain if that happens so that's the the, the number one thing a union can do is like are like make sure that we have a written contract saying that if something like this is looming if there are big major changes that we have a liaison who is communicating with management and make sure that we are kept informed about that um, another thing that they could do is have a contract that ensures enforced severance and what that might mean in this case is maybe telltale shuts down a few weeks earlier but as a result of that because they had money to pay off severance they were able to make sure employees were like we're not just like strung along and I think everyone at Telltale I would bet you that if you asked everyone at Telltale hey would you rather Telltale have shut down a month earlier but you got a month's worth of severance <laughs> I bet most of the answers would be yes oh, if not every single answer like, I'm right a, I strongly believe in the Warren Act I, like I wish yeah and country that was that. yeah and that was like mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know the specifics of the legalities there, but it seems like that was very clearly violated. And I think, if I remember correctly, you can violate the Warren Act, which uh, forces people to notify in the cases of mass layoffs. But I think uh, you can violate it if you like prove that you're financially stressed in a certain way. I'm not, I don't know all the details there. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but, um, but. Uh, they very clearly like fucked up and like Telltale's management should be ashamed of themselves for the way that they handled that. And I think just having a union in place would prevent that sort of thing from happening and make sure that like if a studio is going to shut down, which happens, I mean, studios run out of money, it happens. But like to make sure that that's done in as humane a way as possible and that people who are like, like moved across the country for this dream job don't suddenly find themselves on, out on the street, like holding a box full of their things and just suddenly they're not getting paychecks anymore and I think irrational is a pretty rare case of like a humane shutdown from what I found a lot of them are more along the lines of like management desperately believing that they can hang on and that they can survive and as a result screwing all over screwing over all of their employees in the process yeah the other layoffs I've been through were in California and I did have the Warren Act and I'll just say like the Warren Act alone like that should be all over the country I I love Mm -hmm. that that's yeah um that's so beneficial that's really the difference for me <laughs> also california's non-compete laws are incredible too yeah that too i don't even think about that it's like you know i came out to irrational i was like where's the part where i write down everything i own that you don't and they're like what <laughs> what do you mean it's like you yeah. know like previous inventions no that's uh-huh, not uh-huh. no you don't <laughs> oh god yeah it's like oh jesus um, 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, these are things that a union contract could have, right? Like, the way that unionization works, um, it can work a lot of different ways. Like, in the film industry, it's different uh, fields are unionized, um, like, uh, the writers are unionized, the actors are unionized, et cetera, et cetera. I think what would work better for games is a studio unionization model where a company like uh, Blizzard is unionized and they have a contract that works specifically for Blizzard. So their company, their employees all get together and they say, hey, here's what we value the highest. Here's what we want to see in a contract. So at some companies it might be, we want a maximum number of hours per week that we could work. At other companies, that might be absurd and they might be like, no, we want to be able to crunch if we need to, but we want to make sure that all that crunch is paid no matter what. Or like, we want to make sure that we're all getting the same amount of severance no matter what. Um, I think that that Ultimately, a union can be whatever your kind of company wants it to be. And I think that also winds up eliminating a lot of the bloat that can come with being part of a union that's thousands of members strong. Um, And yeah, I think that that model could work really well in games for a lot of different reasons. That's interesting. But then the um, so I I don't actually again, I've done no research into unions. I that kind of makes sense to me, but that puts the onus on. Basically, somebody at every major company has to spin up their own union in that world, right? Like Blizzard has to spin up their own union, and yep, yeah. I uh, do you, and that also kind of gives. That means everybody working at smaller studios most likely won't have a union, a union at all, right? Like if you're at a studio of thirty, you're probably not going to have a a union. Yeah, I mean, unless you choose to, uh, and I feel like the more momentum that builds, the more common it will become, and the more standard, like, the the ideal, at least for me, and, and for a lot of game developers that I've talked to who are pro-unionization, the ideal is a world where, like, it's just by default implicitly understood that when you start a game studio, they're, like, the workers are going to be unionized in some capacity. Or, I mean, what I've seen gaining more traction is the idea of having a co-op, uh, worker-owned studio. Um, the people who make dead cells do that um their studio motion twin is uh worker owned so everyone just owns a piece of the pie which also seems to me like a pretty uh pretty cool way of doing things and just an interesting approach um i'm not sure that works when it's scaled up like i'm not sure that a 100 person studio could really (laughs) exist where everyone makes all the decisions together equally but um but but it's interesting just to see these new models being explored yeah i've definitely seen that a lot for indie studios up in montreal there's those yeah. studios that are doing that, and that's really cool. I do, I definitely dig that. Um, no, well, I mean, this is all really interesting stuff, though. It, like, I, I definitely don't think about unionize. I'm just too busy, to be honest, to do the mm-hmm. research into a lot of this stuff. And well, I yeah, know, so solo, you don't have to unionize yourself. Well, yeah, and before that, I was basically a co-op, right? And before that, right. I was laid off several times, so I stopped, you know, participating. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do know if I if I'm thinking back, the only. I know a handful of people that are very pro-union and they're, they're more, um, I think working like with the, I forget the acronym. There's like an acronym for a union that's trying to spin up. I do know. Um, Game workers unite. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know a couple of people that are anti-union that work at like um, IGDA and their, their major mm-hmm. arguments are if we unionize jobs will move overseas, which I just think is complete not truth. At all. Well, that's happening anyway. Yeah, <laughs> like, like nobody's stopping that from happening right studio, now. There's just that's not even jobs moving overseas. That's like studios are starting overseas, right? That's just globalization is happening. There's yeah. no, you know, 
that's not gonna yeah happen. that's the stupidest argument because it's like that right now like ea activision you better believe that they're looking for any possible way to to save as much money as possible so like anything they can outsource right now to lower cost countries like countries where the cost of labor is cheaper they're already doing mm-hmm. and i mean there's i've seen parts of that i mean you have to keep in mind i worked at 2k so i saw them like spin up 2k check and then Mm -hmm, move mm -hmm. everybody over to marin which is the most expensive area and then close that like i've seen yeah i've seen the the tries and fails a couple times in this direction with the larger studios i don't think that'll that'll happen i think it'll happen more more when the idea of you have a core creative team in america and you have uh but all development is being done at some large studio overseas, I think is um, not not easy to accomplish and not necessarily mm-hmm. going to work. I think we're going to see a lot more core creative teams spinning up all over the world. I think that's actually kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm excited about. But I'm sorry. We should go back to talking about what it's like to be a journalist because that's why sure. we have you here. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, the... Uh, we didn't even cover all the basics like why did you get into journalism what uh what are you excited about as a journalist this year what are you excited about at gdc lord knows there's gonna be a lot of announcements (laughs) um well okay that's a lot of questions um why did i get into journalism well so i've just always wanted to be a writer um i just like have always loved stories was just reading constantly as a kid and and still try to um and just always wanted to be a storyteller in some capacity and just found myself attracted to journalism um was editor-in-chief of my high school paper and then worked on a college paper and just loved um the thrill and i also am just like a very naturally curious people so person so i love talking to other people who are way smarter than me and know way more than me and just asking them lots of questions and just the fact that you can do that in journalism and then i can can spend most of my job just talking to game developers and who are who know way more than me and just asking them how they do their thing and what's asking them to tell me their stories is like a really cool way to make a living so I love it um, and I also love just like informing people and and getting information to readers and just like making sure that people are kept informed on this weird wild world world of gaming so um yeah i just always just instinctively been drawn to journalism and you're still Um, having fun after all these years all the travel and all the shows and everything all right no i love it i don't travel that much um probably five six times a year max um just a mixture of the conventions the shows and um and uh like other things like for my book projects and stuff and yeah I still love it I'm still I'm trying to do some other cool things I'm working on another book um after the first one and then uh some other projects and I'm hoping to get off the ground um yeah I still love it I still love telling these stories and I think there's a lot of like uh just world that's unexplored and has been kept opaque for so long and I'm trying to do my part to like like my small part to like chiseling that barrier between game developers and the rest of the world and like telling those stories and getting getting more of that info out there is is something that I've really enjoyed and found really rewarding and and satisfying um as for what is exciting um a lot of things I think that uh it'll be exciting to start uh poking around at GDC about what's going on with next gen hardware it'll be exciting to hear about all the streaming platforms and what Google's doing because I'm very curious to see what their big announcement is at GDC that's probably going to be the biggest biggest news out of there um it's just this whole conversation of streaming and what that means and um yeah just the thought of like 
like telling my wife like hey you can open up your laptop and play the witcher 3 on a tab without having to worry about like all this hardware and stuff is pretty pretty interesting to me or like calling my mom and telling her to check this out on a google chrome tab is is pretty cool um so that that has been on my mind and yeah i mean the coolest thing for me at gdc is just getting to um getting facetime with people that i've known for a while getting to meet new people um and just like just being able to just being around a lot of talented creative super smart interesting people is always really fun for me so that's what i try to do the most at at gdc um and that to me is a lot more interesting than the product announcements is just getting to meet people and and hear about their stories is really interesting to me because mm-hmm. you're a storyteller i dig it <laughs> yeah that's always been kind of like the the highfalutin way that uh that I've described I actually so I went to college at NYU in this little school this little department of NYU called Gallatin and Gallatin was like the weird hippie uh subsection where you create your own major essentially and like a lot of people had these weird whack job majors like one person um I heard about had a major in Ninja Turtles and they did that by taking classes in Renaissance studies and and, um, cartoon animation. <laughs> so they were like Ninja Turtles. Um, oh, and then other people did, had more. Where did that person end up in life? <laughs> that I don't know. I hope that, <laughs> I hope they got to work on the Ninja Turtles movies. I, I just hope that for them. But, um, and then, and then other people had more traditional majors that were just like individualized and mine was quote unquote storytelling. So like, this has always just been something that I've been found really interesting, just the way stories are told, um, and, and just finding interesting stories and, and yeah, story, storyteller. If I was like a total douchebag, then <laughs> my business card would be Jason Shire, storyteller. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that, uh, uh, maps well with journalism. Well, I, I don't want to say that. I don't know if you want to, if some, uh, if somebody said, if you were like, this is a journalist and they're like, no, that's a storyteller. I feel like those could possibly be up to then. But no, I think it, no, quite the opposite. Journalism is storytelling. I mean, the most yeah. interesting. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years is telling true stories um, about people and like trying to make sure they're as accurate as possible. Journalistic storytelling is a lot harder than fictional storytelling because you can't just make things up and you have to make sure everything's accurate and 100 percent true. But yeah, that's 100 percent is like all all of all of journalism is storytelling. And sometimes it's better or more interesting and more human storytelling than others but even when you're like writing a story that's like anthem just came out here's the new trailer you're still telling the story about that game it's not as interesting as like here's the story of how anthem turned out the way it did and the people behind it and all the the challenges and tribulations they had to go through that to me is a lot more interesting of a story but we're just talking about different types of stories there it's all storytelling hell yeah well uh it's been great chatting with you Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, I appreciate it. This has been Gwen Frey and Chris Light and Jason Schreier, and you've been in the Dialogue Box.